Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'm going to tell you a few stories today that, uh, of science that uh, came out of the lab and um, made its way into bio- biotech with the intention of treating uh, patients for a number of different maladies. So the first story, uh, it's it's funny. It, it, I'm a stem cell biologist trained in Herb Weissman's lab in you know blood forming stem cells, and I started my lab in 2007, and I was right around the you know shortly after uh, Shinya Yamanaka had published his uh, seminal paper on um, reprogramming adult uh, somatic cells back to pluripotency with these what are now known as the Yamanaka. Yamanaka factors, these four transcription factors. And I, like everybody else in the stem cell community, was pretty inspired by this work. So when I started my lab in 2007, a year later, and I was actually at at Shinya's talk at uh, the ISSCR conference in Toronto when he first presented his data, and it was just, you know, mind-blowing in its elegance and and, uh, potential. So when I started my lab, we thought about a little uh, side project. So you may recall that when Yamanaka first did um, reprogramming, he used retroviral vectors to deliver these transcription factors. And if we were ever to imagine the um, full therapeutic potential, so the the near-term therapeutic potential was disease modeling in a dish, uh, which probably the retroviruses wouldn't have a big impact upon, uh, which retroviruses integrate the genome, of course. But uh, if we were to think about, uh, you know, the generation of autologous cells for cell cell and tissue-based therapies, we would probably wish to get the those genomes full of retroviruses uh, out of the equation before imagining transplanting such cells. So we and others started to think about this, and there was many approaches to try to sort of achieve Yamanaka's uh, objective uh, using non-DNA uh, integrating methods. So cell penetrating peptides, for example, was one study that got published and other approaches. But we had a very simple approach. We know that, you know, I was trained as a molecular biologist, so I think everybody here in the room knows that, you know, DNA is the, the code of, of life, it, but it's a relatively passive molecule. And in order for it to do its business, it has to make its vector molecules, which are proteins. But there's this obligate uh, intermediate of messenger RNA that's, uh, that it takes the code from the DNA, basically in a slightly altered nucleic acid out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm to the ribosome for protein synthesis. So we thought, well, why don't we just use mRNAs to achieve this. It's a non-integrating nucleic acid. It also had the bonus of, you know, being a relatively labile molecule. So, you know, we wish to express the Yamanaka factors for a short period of time, but then not express them anymore once we had reprogrammed the cells. So it seemed like a good idea, but wasn't it strange that, um, you know, RNA had been discovered to be the intermediate molecule between DNA protein synthesis in 1961 uh, and here we are, were in uh, 2007, and there was not a lot of people that were, in fact, almost nobody that was using mRNA as a sort of a, a, a delivery vehicle for protein uh, uh, production. So people were transfecting DNA, people were putting proteins into cells, but you know, at, at best, people were mRNA uh, profiling for transcriptomes, but nobody was using it as a tool. And 
molecular biologists use anything out of nature as a tool if they possibly could. So it was a little bit odd that it wasn't being used, but we sort of ignored that and thought, well, let's give it a try anyhow. So we made return to the textbooks, non-mRNA biologists per se. So we made very, you know, canonical um, mRNAs. And uh, so there's an open reading frame, five prime UTRs, three prime UTRs, a cap, a poly A tail. And we transfected it into human cells in addition. It totally didn't work. Uh, and it, it didn't work in spectacular fashion. So not only did we not get, you know, transfection and expression of the proteins that we so wished. And in the early days, we were just making a GFP mRNA green fluorescent protein, but we were actually killing all the cells pretty robustly. And the reason for that is this rather busy slide. It turns out we did some uh, profiling the cells before they died to find out that they had this massive uh, NF-kappa-B mediated interferon signal that was blasting in them just before death. So pretty much if you introduce a nucleic acid from outside the cell, so here at the top of the slide is the outside of the cell. This is the, the cytoplasm here, this large sort of beige area nucleus down here. Uh, if you bring a nucleic acid in from the outside of the cell, cells have basically see that as bad news. That's a by and large a pathogen coming in, be it a single-stranded nucleic acid or a double-stranded nucleic acid. And ever since you know pathogens and cells first met one another, pathogens have been trying to figure out new and improved ways to infect cells, and cells have been coming up with new and improved pathways to detect and shut that down. So TLRs and NF-kappa-B-mediated mechanisms, NDR, RIGI, and like I said, many other um, uh, uh, molecular players that are depicted in this slide. And uh, so what we were doing when we were transfecting cells, we were tripping these pathways. We found out by profiling, which of course led to uh, the cessation of protein translation, which is of course exactly what we wish to have happen, uh, and um, uh, apoptotic cell death. So programmed cell death. So better for a, a cell to be altruistic uh, and kill itself upon viral trans. Uh, transfection than to allow the pathogen to propagate and, and uh, you know, compromise the whole organism. So the cells were doing a good thing by killing themselves, but this was not going to really help us get over uh, what, uh, get, you know, get get to the goal that we wished, which was making these induced pluripotent uh, stem cells. And that could have been the end of the story, but luckily uh, there was a set of researchers out there that were sort of looking at this carefully. So as it turns out, the nucleus, nucleosides of RNA are actually highly modified in cells of the body, in mammalian cells. There's over 110 different modified, modified nucleosides that are in use uh, in the RNA in our cells. And really critically, in 2005, uh, Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman at UPenn published a paper where they discovered, and I'm sure you all know this now because it's been um, widely celebrated and for good reason, um, they showed that certain modified nucleosides could um, be attached to RNAs. They weren't actually making mRNAs at the time. They didn't make any mRNAs in 2005 in their paper, but they showed that if you made oligonucleotides or longer oligo uh, oligos of RNA, that if you incorporated these modified nucleosides, which were naturally occurring, that you could abrogate this antiviral response. 
So we thought, well, maybe these um, modified nucleosides could be incorporated into mRNAs when we were synthesizing them, which is easy to do. You know, when you synthesize mRNA, you have a cocktail of nucleosides and we could just swap out one or more uh, modified nucleosides. So here's an experiment, an early experiment that we did um, uh, where we transfected again, a GFP, um, a GFP construct, mRNA construct into cells. This is very low mag. I don't have a scale here, but these little green dots, which I hope you can see in whatever light you have in the room there are indeed green cells. We got a few green cells, but we got a, a big plate of, of, of darkness and black here. And if you look over onto the right, uh, you see actually that the viability on this lower, um, uh, graph on the right the viability of this transfection is but 20% uh, of the cells were positive, and that's upon a single transfection. We got low level. The graph above is the mean fluorescence intensity, so it was low level. So that's just using standard nucleosides. If we, however, swapped out um, a modified nucleoside, 5-methylcytosine in place of cytosine, which uh, uh, Drew and Kathy had shown was decent at abrogating this uh, antiviral response. We again, we now got much greater viability down here on the lower right. You can see a lot more green cells. You can see that they're brighter. The mean fluorescence intensity was higher. Similarly, if we made mRNAs with pseudouridine in place of uridine, again, it had a good impact on cell viability and um, uh, mean fluorescence intensity. So more GFP was expressed. But the real, the real uh, trick came when we combined the two modified nucleosides. Of course, they were on different nucleosides, so we could do that. Put 5-methylcytosine and pseudouridine into the cells. Now we got very, very good viability, above 80% and, and very robust uh, protein expression. So we started to use this technology, which we called modified mRNA or modRNA for short, with these modified nucleosides, and characterized its properties. It had you know, really nice, um, I'll say drug-like properties. So here on the um, the left-hand side of, of the screen, uh, we're again, just transfecting mRNA for GFP. And you can see in a dose-dependent uh, way that the more uh, mRNA we transfected, the, the more A cells got transfected and the higher the signal. So from, you know, 10 nanograms to a thousand nanograms, you've got a really blasting signal. At, uh, of almost 100% of the cells expressing uh, the GFP, and that's quantified on the right here. Uh, but there's one thing that was certain, and that's that you know mRNA is a relatively labile molecule. And by the way, this is why I think many researchers, although I suspected many researchers tried to use mRNA in the you know decades since uh, you know the early um, uh, 1960s. Uh, but uh, many were afraid to use it because it's very a labile molecule. It's very easily degraded by RNases, which are all over our pipettes and all over our bench and all over our hands. People, and that was kind of the belief that people didn't want to use it because it was too labile. Um, but actually, I think the real reason is because it's highly immunogenic when you reintroduce it into cells. Anyhow, when you, uh, the one thing that is true though, it, rel it does have a relatively short half-life, even in cells. So when you transfected, this is just with a, a GFP a time on the uh, x-axis here, you can see that, you know, post-transfection, transfection at, you know, zero hours, by 12 hours, you had sort of maxed out um, expression uh, and it returned to a baseline a couple of days later. 
And um, that was with a relatively long-lived GFP um, protein. We also did it with a shorter-lived uh, GFP protein, and that um, uh, time window was shortened, of course, because there's two things at play here. There's the half-life of the mRNA and also the half-life of the protein that you're making. But we found that we could actually, and this was really only true of the modified RNA, which was non-immunogenic compared to unmodified RNA, we could actually transfect on day one and then go back again and transfect on day two, day three, and on and on. Um, and so this is an experiment we transfected 10 days consecutively in these human fibroblasts uh, on a plate. So the first thing you can appreciate is that the plate is full of fibroblasts. There's a monolayer here. Uh, so they're not dead. <laughs> they're really happy. Uh, and in this case, we were using a nuclear localized GFP. And you could see that here. I just overlaid the, uh, the GFP channel with the bright field. Another nice thing, you could transfect more than one mRNA at the same time and get both expressed. So here we had an mRNA for M-Cherry, another one for GFP transfected into human keratinocytes and all the cells express both of the mRNAs, both of the proteins. We transfected up to seven at a time and all were expressed. Uh, I know Drew uh, Weissman has told me of experiments of 25 at a time. So really the the, the number of uh, mRNAs that can be transfected, you know, it's all a matter of getting them into the delivery vehicle and you could make, I used to call them sandwiches of all kinds of different ingredients of mRNA. And if the sandwich goes in, if the cell eats the sandwich, all of the ingredients go in. So actually an experiment that I wanted, uh, I tried to convince multiple postdocs and students to do, which nobody did. Nobody would take me up on the challenge, which was to uh, take a cell type that totally didn't have a an entire signal transduction pathway from cell surface molecules to uh, cytoplasmic mediators to transcription factors uh, and express the whole cascade of signaling transduction of a signaling transduction pathway in a, in a cell type that didn't have any of these elements. And I just thought that would be a really cool way to sort of demonstrate the power of the technology. But like I said, nobody bit at that one. So we went back to um, our, our task at hand, which was moving cell fate around. There's many other um, experiments, which I don't show, show you characterizing the technology. Uh, but the first thing we did was we moved uh, fibroblast cell uh, fate around. We just did a one-factor cell fate uh, uh, translation or transformation. So we expressed uh, sort of a, a master myogenic transcription factor, myOD. And these are from the very early uh, Weintraub experiments showing that myOD could convert the fate of fibroblast to multinucleate uh, myofibers which I show here in the, on the slide on the right, multinucleate, they were contractile. They would actually pull them to that cells off the dish. We, of course, uh, went back and, and uh, did RNA reprogramming to pluripotency. Uh, and really the remarkable thing, and this was not um, expected, but so the, I'm showing you an image here of um, a pluripotency marker immunostaining of a plate of cells that we reprogram versus the Yamanaka reprogramming. And so the brown dots are the, re, uh, the cells that are expressing this TRA-160 marker that are reprogrammed. So you can see Yamanaka reprogramming was relatively inefficacious. Mind you, this is not a terribly ineffective experiment. There's plenty of pluripotent colonies there. 
But if you look at, at, at the plate of our cells, it was pretty much the whole plate was um, converted. And this is with four factor, the original four factor Yamanaka. If we added Lin 28 to that, we literally turned the, the plate brown. You couldn't see any anything that wasn't reprogrammed. And so the, the effectiveness was you know, up to 40 fold more effective than uh, retroviral reprogramming. And then we did an experiment, which I thought was really cool, which got largely ignored in our paper when we published it. But, you know, at the time, the elephant in the room for using iPS cells for therapeutic um, purpose, you know, disease modeling and or um, uh, autologous cell trans cell and tissue transplantation was that uh, the methodologies for um, turning pluripotent cells into a differentiated cell type were largely driven by these uh, by modulating the extracellular milieu of iPS cells to coax their fate towards a given lineage. But I thought, well, we could maybe just, you know, introduce factors that would, instead of reprogram, program in a forward direction uh, cells to a certain fate. So we did uh, this experiment. We first reprogrammed a pluripotency with I, uh, uh, the modified RNA. And then we took those cells. So those were fibroblasts. And then we um, added uh, a myOD RNA first. We let them just for, sort of grow out a bit. And then we took myOD and we turned them into multinucleate myofibers. And I actually thought that this was going to be, be the thing that people really sort of latched on to. But I honestly don't think I've seen anybody do such experiments uh, since. Uh, and still the way that people uh, drive their sort of uh, differentiated cell types from uh, from a, a progenitor or a pluripotent cell is through uh, modulation of the extracellular milieu with cytokines and growth factors and the like. So we published this paper in uh, 2010. Uh, we got the cover of uh, Cell Stem Cell, which was cool, um, and uh, it made a it made a lot of um, uh, it was very uh, celebrated in both the lay and scientific press, which was cool. Um, but what I found a little bit surprising was I was getting, you know, calls from, you know, pharma executives on a relatively regular basis saying, you know, Dr. Rossi, we saw your, uh, your technology for, um, making IPS cells. We'd really like to license that because we have, we have an IPS cell, uh, sort of program. And of course, all of pharma was doing IPS cell programs at the time. Remember this only three years or three and a bit years post Yamanaka's original discovery. But what I didn't hear any of those pharma guys say was, wow, you can really make any protein in cells. Wouldn't that be cool thinking about a therapeutic? found that really surprising. But that's what I was thinking about. So I thought, well, what, what experiments would we need to do to convince ourselves that you know modified mRNA might be used translationally as a therapeutic? So we had done all our work in tissue culture cells, human cells, but in a dish at the time. So of course we had to take it into animals. Uh, and so we did an experiment where we made a modified mRNA for luciferase. And we, this is literally, I don't think this is the first experiment, but the first experiment was as successful as this. So we took it downstairs, a bunch of lab knuckleheads. We didn't know anything about delivery. We just did it in the same sort of lipoplex that we had been transfecting cells in the uh, tissue culture dish. And we took down varying doses of luciferase, mRNA, modified mRNA, injected in the thigh muscle of mice uh, that were had been dosed with luciferin, the substrate. 
and then put them in the CCD chamber. And lo and behold, we were getting uh, really robust um, expression. Uh, and it's actually a, a nine hour time point, but even as, as soon as two, three hours post uh, transfection, we could see uh, light uh, emitting from the thigh muscle of these mice. And the cool thing is, which maybe you can appreciate from the x-axis at the top here is relatively dose dependent. And again, this was very primitive um, <laughs> cell delivery technology we were using. So this is the work of uh, Wataru Bina and Lior Zangi. And I should say, have said um, that the iPS cell work was largely driven by um, Luigi Warren in the lab. Luciferase is not a therapeutic protein. So we wanted to have a, a, some evidence that we could do something uh, translationally, so we made a um, modified mRNA for human erythropoietin, uh, and human EPO acts on the mouse erythropoietin receptor to drive um, red cell production. We knew this, but we made the human EPO because it differs from the mouse EPO in, a, in an epitope that we could pick up with an ELISA assay. So you could see that in this experiment here uh, that we dosed, uh, again, we put the mRNA for EPO into the thigh muscle of the mice and in a dose-dependent manner, we could pull up uh, erythropoietin floating around uh, the blood uh, plasma levels uh, in these animals. Uh, and when we did their red cell counts, we saw a dose-dependent increase in red cells in hematocrit and hematoglobin. This is the work of Pankaj Mandel and Mor Morag Stewart in the lab. We also did a study that was published a couple of years later in this work of Lior Zangi, where he was very interested in the heart and uh, cardiac infarction and the problems that emerge from infarction. So you get a you get an infarction in your heart and then you get a fibrotic um, repair process, which is uh, leads to diminished heart function. So we thought, well, uh, there had been some large body of literature suggesting that, well, if possibly if uh, BGF, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, might be able to use be used to stimulate neovascular genesis in the damaged heart, and that might reduce fibrosis uh, during uh, um, recovery from infarct. So we went into the murine heart. Uh, if you go in with DNA, and this was a reviewer question, so a DNA, for, and the, here we're um, transfecting a Cree either Cree DNA or a Cree um, modified mRNA, and we're putting it into lock stop, locks, laxi mice. So only if Cree is expressed, does it flox out the stop codon and uh, laxi is expressed. So wherever you see blue, that means that the mRNA was expressed. And you can see um, that the mRNA was really robustly, and again, dose, type, uh, dose dependent uh, expression in the murine heart. What I find interesting about this is that um, we did a single needle injection, and I, you can sort of see it here. I think the needle track is somewhere around here. Not totally sure about that, but it's sort of in the middle of the uh, of of this wave of of expression, suggesting that it was likely there. But uh, more than just the needle track of cells got transfected. Really, a pretty large swathe of the uh, of the um, murine heart was uh, transfected. You really see it with this laxine state staining here. That was a single injection. This program eventually got picked up by AstraZeneca, actually, and and taken through phase two. But they've ended the program this this past year. But you know, with the idea of, of uh, for infarct patients coming in and getting a, a dose of uh, modified mRNA for VGF into their 
uh, newly infarcted heart for regeneration. But as I said, unfortunately, that um, uh, program was discontinued. But it, um, uh, that uh, our original paper was in Nature Biotech in 2013, and this just showed that. So I'm sorry, I started with the VEGF. Here's the VEGF experiment here. So if you put a modified mRNA for VEGF. If you don't do it, this is the type of vasculogenesis you get on an infarct heart. You don't get much neovasculogenesis, which are these um, orange, uh, you know, these uh, stained with these orange uh, uh, squiggles, I guess. Whereas if you put it in VGF or modified RNA, uh, VGF modified RNA, you get really good vasculogenesis upon repair. And DNA, you got some, but not quite as good. And this is tw- uh, seven days post infarct, and it's micro uh, microfill staining that we're looking at there. A modified mRNA had some really um, good characteristics. So I put together a pitch deck and I went out to venture capitalists to try to raise some money and actually colleagues first. Uh, Nice properties. It's non-toxic. These are naturally occurring nucleosides, non-immunogenic. That's what makes it work. It's dose titratable. That's good for a drug. You could control temporally uh, whether or not you wanted a short burst of protein expression or sustained by either doing a single or sustained, you know, multiple uh, deliveries. Uh, and really the big thing here is the versatility, really op- any open reading frame that you knew the sequence of could be could be turned into a, a modified mRNA to express that protein. In my lab, within the first sort of six months of um, sort of working with this technology, we had over 100 uh, mRNAs, uh, modified mRNAs that we're using routinely in the lab. Everybody's, all, all the lab people used it in their projects. Uh, timeline for drug development would be fast, I imagine. You know, when we wanted to make a new modified mRNA, if we had a cDNA or we'd ordered the cDNA or cloned the cDNA and, and put it into a, you know, a vector for um, reverse transcriptase, with these modified nucleosides and purify it, we could do that in a week, a week and a half. So very, very rapid to make a new uh, testable modified mRNA. And you can imagine the efficacy being read out in one to three months, whatever your uh, uh, model happened to be, much, much faster than uh, protein therapeutics. And so I imagine sort of disrupting the protein therapeutic sort of paradigm. So there's over, you know, a hundred different FDA approved um, recombinant proteins. But now you're, I imagine you could do this at much, a much better cost of goods because now you could have the patients make their own protein um, and it would be properly post-translationally modified because it would be made by the patient's own cells. Uh, and again, the diversity of things that you could do, you could make secreted factors using sort of a depot strategy as we did with this with that um, uh, mRNA for EPO or, you know, localized intracellular proteins or nuclear proteins, stuff that's normally out of bounds for recombinant protein therapy, which largely works in the extracellular milieu. So um, after raising some funding from an angel, uh, Tim Springer, who's a colleague who founded uh, Millennium, uh, I recruited a couple of co-founders, Bob Langer at MIT and Ken Chen, who is the only MD, PhD or MD, and, you know, I'm a PhD, Bob's an engineer, I wanted to make a therapeutics company. So I wanted to have somebody that knew something about medicine. Uh, we raised two and a half million dollars, small raise in 2010. These were original labs over here on First Ave in Cambridge, Mass. Um, so we, as I said, raised two and a half million before going public. Moderna raised over 2.5 billion. So add three zeros to that. That's how much money was raised. 
went uh, public in 2008, raised a record amount of money at the time, over $600 million, nice ticker mRNA. This is an old slide. I don't know what the market cap is today, but somewhere in the 70-ish billion dollar range. Again, this is old, but currently I think there's about 2,500 employees, lots of job postings. It's a multinational uh, company now. Importantly, Moderna used some of this these billions raised to build a manufacturing facility prior to COVID happening uh, in Norwood, Mass. And that's actually what accelerated the development of um, the COVID vaccine when the time came. So we already had the manufacturing capability of doing it. Uh, and again, this is all, you know, many programs in clinical, you know, uh, in clinical development in lots of different areas. As I said, you know, vaccines, cancer vaccines, secreted factors, intracellular therapeutics, immune oncology. I think oncology is going to be a big, big deal for mRNA science. Again, this is old. I don't know what the pipeline looks like today. This was probably a few months ago. Uh, various different programs at various different stages. It's just another uh, slide of that. There's uh, you know, I know this is in phase three. The RSV program is also in phase three. Yeah, so here this is a little bit old because this is now over here. But of course, the one that everybody knows about is this COVID-19 vaccine, which was um, emerged uh, in the face of uh, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, which um, got declared a global, global pandemic in uh, March of 2020. Uh, Moderna started working on this after the uh, sequence to SARS-CoV-2 was published uh, by the Shanghai Consortium in January of 2020, uh, and 45 days post learning the sequence, they shipped a patient-ready sample of the um, mRNA vaccine against spike protein, and this is the clinical data, which I'm sure many of you have seen from the original uh, randomized phase three trial where those that didn't get the um, uh, vaccine, they got placebo, they continued to get, this is cumulative event rate, so they continued to get uh, COVID-19, whereas those that got the mRNA vaccine were largely protected, 95% against infection and 100% against hospitalization and death. So we know all about that now. The original strain was 95% effective, Delta came around. This is a great pathogen, just a real a, a, a fast evolver. Well, with so many uh, so many replications and so much opportunity for uh, natural selection to occur, it's done that very effectively in a really short period of time. So Delta, the original strains were only you know seventy to eighty percent effective. That if you boosted, okay, you got up to ninety. The Omicron strains, the original Omicron strain, only twenty to thirty percent effective. And even upon boost, uh, 70, 75% effective. And that's this is data from prior to the, the latest versions of Omicron. Uh, so Omicron, as you know, has 54 mutations. Uh, luckily for us, it's a less pathogenic, less virulent virus, uh, but it's a super highly contagious virus. So it's uh, raging. I literally just got a text from a, a friend whom I was supposed to get together with tomorrow in New York. And he's like, oh man, I think I got the COVID. So I won't be seeing uh, my friend Michael tomorrow. Uh, but lucky for us, the uh, bivalent boosters have been emergency authorized approved. So Omicron plus the original SARS-CoV-2, and that was in August of uh, this year. So it's available. Uh, but we can also, one thing we can be sure of, uh, we're only halfway through the Greek alphabet. 
uh, and uh, phi rho sigma all the way to omega are likely to emerge. So we have to stay vigilant. I give this talk sometimes to lay audience. So uh, just a reminder, this is not a lay audience though. So. Bone marrow transplantation procedures. There's about uh, 50 to 55 a thousand performed yearly globally and this is just sort of a heat map of where um bone let's uh, you know bone marrow transplant or mobilized peripheral blood uh, transplants are performed yearly uh and it's it's a great therapy um you know it's it's life-saving or can be life-saving for a number of really deadly diseases uh, leukemias lymphomas bone marrow failure syndromes sickle cell thalassemia um mds and others but it there's no question that it remains a high risk procedure procedure so that's bespoken by these numbers here so the one year survival rate for hla match siblings is only 70 percent and 55 percent for unrelated donors these are a little bit older numbers i think these numbers are from 2013. what kills patients largely is the relapse depending upon what they're being transplanted for but you know opportunistic infection graft versus host is uh, common, uh, really unwanted uh, side effects of bone marrow transplant. Uh, but it's, it is life-saving uh, for many. So uh, first transplants were done, you know, over uh, 60 years ago as curative. Over a million patients have actually been transplanted now. Um, and actually love this picture here. I don't know if you can, the, the top, top left, I don't know if you can see my laser. But um, so uh, this is the oldest surviving bone marrow transplant patient, um, uh, Nancy McLean. This is her transplant doc here on the left. Uh, Robert Kyle, this is 52 years post original transplant. And what I think is the, the most interesting part, well, not the most interesting, but I, I actually think the photographer did an injustice by only sort of getting half of this person in profile. But if you look closely, you can actually sort of see that this woman looks an awful lot like this woman. It's because they're identical twins and she was actually the bone marrow donor and her twin had uh, bone marrow failure syndrome. Uh, but that was in the days before HLA matching. So you could really only transplant twins, but then we learned about HLA matching. So you get transplants from a donor such as Petra Polker here on the right with her, um, uh, the person who received her bone marrow, uh, this uh, young woman, Jocelyn Miller on the left, who got um, uh, cured of sickle cell, very severe sickle cell that, the disease, and they were a good HLA match. Uh, but of course, as I said, a very severe, you know, it's a really last uh, ditch um, a procedure that, you're, uh, that you'll uh, be prescribed because of all of this uh, un uh, uh, untoward uh, morbidity and mor mortality. So we were thinking about this, we and many others around the planet, and this is how the procedure usually happens. You have a donor, you collect their bone marrow, mobilized peripheral blood, you process it, you maybe freeze it, you uh, unfreeze it, you, and here's your donor. They need to be sort of prepped for transplant, so conditioned. So with either high-dose chemotherapy or radiation, does two things, clears out their old marrow, possibly, uh, hopefully does a number on whatever cancer they happen to be plagued with, blood cancer, for example, and then the, the, the donor graft is um, infused. So we imagine that, and there are some people that are not good mobilizers. You could, you know, not everybody mobilizes well. It could be a good donor, but a poor, poor mobilizer. 
Uh, one thing is true, stem cells don't expand very well. Uh, you take the Mex Vivo and um, they differentiate. And honestly, the single biggest uh, factor for transplant success is the number of stem cells transplanted. But this is really a big deal here, conditioning. You know, if you didn't have to give non-discriminant sort of conditioning to a full patient, you could really just target the bone marrow or stem cell compartment. Uh, it would be preferred. And you can imagine making transplant safer and uh, not only using it for standard care settings, but curative therapy for many other things for which there's good case studies suggesting that bone marrow transplant can be used, for example, to um, treat people with autoimmunity, for example. So we did some experiments in the lab where we uh, took a relatively um, stem cell specific antibody targeting C kit, uh, CD117, also known as it's expressed on uh, blood forming stem cells and their most proximal multipotent and oligopotent progeny, but not on differentiated blood cells. It's also expressed in a few other cell types of the body. And we hooked up a, um, we got a good antibody for that and put an immunotoxin on it. Uh, and uh, condition mice with this, hoping just to ablate the stem cell compartment, stem progenitor cell compartment, so we could transplant. And indeed, that turned out to be true. So if you don't condition the animals and you transplant an unconditioned animal, you don't get very good engraftment. So that's in the gray, gray bar here, and the level of chimerism, the level of engraftment is here on the y-axis. And I'm waving this as year, year post-transplant. Uh, Whereas if you condition with this um, immunotoxin conjugated antibody, you could uh, really get, you know, really robust uh, chimerism. So Anishka Chekowitz in the lab, who's at Stanford now running her own lab, published that paper in 2019. We did it collaboratively with Raul Patterji, who's a co-first author on this paper, uh, published the original paper where they um, um, uh, did the same approach targeting CD45, which is pan-hematopoietic but again, with the intent of uh, transplantation. So with that data, uh, I co-founded Magenta Therapeutics along with my um, colleague at Harvard, David Scadden. This was the early team. Uh, this is, again, I'm sorry, this deck is quite old, but this is what their sort of pipeline looks like. It, the public went uh, public in uh, uh, 2018, um, the ticker of M MGTA, but a couple of programs in phase one and phase two, uh, the conditioning programs are what I'm most excited about that I think is going to be the most impactful. So this is a mobilization program. We had a better mobilizer. This is the sort of CD, um, uh, C-Kit uh, targeted uh, conditioning that Anishka and my lab uh, uh, led uh, the charge on. Uh, and this is other programs which are preclinical. And so one last story. So gene editing, and again, this starts again with an unlikely uh, uh, source, and it's this uh, Timothy Brown, also known as the Berlin patient. Many of you in the audience, I'm sure, know. Uh, he was twice unlucky and once very lucky. So he was unlucky in that he was HIV positive, uh, and, but he was really unlucky when he was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia but he got lucky in that he was sort of not one of the first wave of HIV patients, but a later wave. Uh, and it had already been known that uh, patients with, um, or uh, people with um, a certain deletion of a gene called CCR5, which is a co-receptor for HIV-1 strains of HIV, 
when the, there is a naturally occurring mutation called Delta 32. And so it's a small deletion inside the CCR5 uh, gene. Uh, but when you were um, uh, homozygous for this CCR5, which uh, some people in the Northern hemisphere are, they were highly resistant to HIV uh, infection, HIV one strains of HIV. And so uh, this was known. And when he needed his transplant, Timothy Brown, uh, his doctors um, found somebody who was HLA matched uh, and from a Delta 32 uh, donor. So he became the first person uh, cured of HIV. There's now actually been a second patient, the London patient. So this is potentially a way to cure people of HIV. Antiretrovirals are great, of course, but um, if we could cure people uh, of their disease, might we do that? So when CRISPR was first published, when it made the jump out of um, um, bacterial uh, and bacteriophage biology in 2013, we read this paper and we thought, well, let's apply CRISPR to blood-forming stem cells and let's target CCR5. Uh, and to, to show that we could make a delta allele with human HSCs that could potentially be used as a therapeutic for patients such as, as Timothy Brown. So Pankaj Mandal in my lab led this study. We actually made a dual guide strategy. So to make a delta allele, uh, we made lots of different guides. We used lots of different, well, a, a handful of different human do donors uh, screen. The nice thing about HSCs, you can clonally screen them. You can make them form colonies and uh, examine the clones to see that we had pretty good uh, monoallelic inactivation and, and pretty high percentage of biallelic inactivation. When CRISPR first made the jump into mammalian cells, the efficacy was 1% to 2%, 3%. It was terrible. We were getting you know 20 25%. So using electroporation of CRISPR into blood cells, we're getting a lot of cell death from electroporation. But if we got CRISPR in there, we could really get it to work with some good quality guides. Um, we Those cells that were uh, CRISPR treated, we could transplant them into nodskid mice, get human chimerism, multi-lineage B and T cells, or I'm sorry, B and myeloid cells here, but T cells as well. And we could take those, the bone marrow, the spleen out of those animals and show that these, this delta allele that we made was engrafting into the mice. And actually, we, which I don't show you the data, it was very, very highly efficacious and very, very highly specific. We did a very, very deep off-target analysis. And really, you know, if you make a good, good guide, you could get really uh, uh, specific cutting. So that what we envisioned was taking HSCs out of a patient that happens to be HIV positive. Uh, they're positive for CCR5 using CRISPR-Cas9 to make a Delta CCR5 allele and transplant back in. And wouldn't it be nice if you could transplant back in a non in a non-myeloablative way, uh, a la magenta? And actually what's kind of cool is the um, HSCs are being used uh, to treat patients with CRISPR. Uh, not for um, CCR5, but for things like uh, sickle cell uh, and thalassemia and other diseases. But the neat thing is, and I'm kind of quite happy about this, the Cas9 is being expressed almost exclusively in all these studies by modified mRNA. So kind of we had a little bit of a role in that and that, and, and hopefully I should put in a magenta sign or a C, uh, 
C-Kit conditioning here. I got to put that into that slide. Uh, we also got the cover of cell stem cell. Again, like I said, it was very precise uh, editing. So that's what was de depicted in the picture there. And that was published in 2014, November. And then in four days later, we launched Intellio Therapeutics with a bunch of CRISPR pioneers. Jennifer Downa, you know, won the Nobel Prize, but Luciana Marafini, uh, Rudolf Barangu, and uh, Eric Sonheimer are early CRISPR pioneers when they were, you know, when, when CRISPR was still a bacteria fighting up bacteriophage issue. And this is, again, an old slide, but it's in the clinic in phase one, moving to phase two for a number of programs. Uh, actually, this is exciting in vivo CRISPR. So putting the mRNA for Cas9 uh, and, and the guides into lipid nanoparticles, putting them into people, getting it to go to the liver and target these targets. And that data, actually, early data, look, clinical data looks very good. But you can also take the cells out, for example, as we did with hematopoietic stem cells and introduce CRISPR-Cas9 and then put the cells back into people either for, you know, AML here, sickle cell or CAR-T therapies are, are, are being engineered with um, CRISPR and mRNA. Uh, so um, this is a, I retired from academia in 2018, but this is what my, my lab uh, looked like at the time. So many people to thank who did all the work, many collaborators, funding sources, and I'll stop there and take any questions if you have them. All right. That was really a tour de force. Thanks so much, Derek. I know you wanted to be here, but we really appreciate you sharing so much fundamental science with us. As you can see from Derek's talk, when we worked together, it was 17 and a half years ago now, but who's uh, remembering? Uh, in our Weissman's lab, we were working on stem cell aging, and you can see Derek's uh, continuous deep dives into science are completely um, based on his incredible inquisitiveness. I'm just wondering about uh, any questions in the audience. I'm good for time, Katrina. Good for time. Uh, you don't have to rush. I've got okay. a dinner oh. reservation, but I'd be able to make it still. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a question. I saw Beam Therapeutics on your slide, Derek. And so I was interested in prime editing, so using APUBEC base editing and um, also ADAR mediated base editing. Have you looked into those strategies? You use standard Cas9, CRISPR, or not so standard, your modified RNA version? No, I have not, but you should because you're focused on ADR and base editing. No, but for sure, but for sure others are, I think it's a great avenue to pursue. Uh, base editing is a smart idea. Obviously, the, 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 the beauty of base editing is getting away from uh, double strand DNA breaks. You know, the problem I always had, and I remember early strategies where people were talking about, for example, um, targeting viruses in cells with CRISPR. It's a terrible idea where you have multiple different, and, and this is the whole danger of off-target, is as soon as you make a double-strand break, if you have another double-strand break somewhere else in the genome, uh, you're going to guarantee that at some frequency, those two double-strand breaks are going to align, you're going to get trans, uh, translocation. So um, if you don't have to go for double strand break and you could rather base, uh, base edit using various strategies, um, it's a better strategy. I'm, you know, you have to imagine there's, you know, there is a beauty to um, cutting the DNA, let's say for making Delta alleles, uh, like as the case for possibly for um, um, HIV uh, prevention, CCR5, um, 
but I think that, and if you could do it in, you know, with really highly specific um, uh, guides that don't cut elsewhere in the genome, then you there's a path forward. And there is a path forward because the FDA is very, very cognizant of off-target. That's like one of the biggest things that that one gets grilled on when you take a therapy, uh, a CRISPR therapy into the clinic. So you really have to convincingly show that your level of off-target is very low. By the way, gene therapy is not considered, you know, for, for integrating gene therapy, you know, that those are double-strand breaks to get those uh, vectors into the genome. Uh, and we know sometimes the problem is that the uh, the early generation of um, uh, uh, lentiviruses, you know, activated oncogenes, and that was the problem. But the fact of the matter is there's double-strand cuts to get them into the genome. So uh, we can cut the genome safely and efficiently. There is, of course, it's a numbers game. At, at some point, the numbers you know, even as, if it's one in a trillion, you're going to hit that number and have that adverse event. So it's a safe uh, um, uh, safety uh, versus efficacy. Uh, you, you must wait that. But certainly base editing without the DNA cutting, if you can get the efficacy up to very high levels, like, you know, I showed you some data and that that's old data. That's from like 20, 2013. Uh, the very, very high levels of efficacy now, you know, into the 80, 90, you know, 100% range with CRISPR cutting now, um, you really need efficacy too. And I haven't looked at the base editors of late, but they have been less effective, at least, um, yeah, but I'm not up on the field. So it could be that the efficacy is going up on those as well. Yeah, so I think Rob Signer has a question, but just before we do that, I remember in 2010 when you developed the RNA and uh, pluripotent stem cell technology, RIPA, and you were in Time magazine, you were so excited about that and being honored, and you know, you've clearly personified that Ganbatsu never, ever, ever give up spirit that you hear about in Japan. What made you keep going? I remember you were having trouble getting the company financed. You said, I know this is a great idea and nobody's funding it. How did you solve that issue? What made you keep going? Well, I mean, it's true of any scientist sitting in the room when you when you that you when you know something to be, and we only know as far as our experimental data can confirm. So, hopefully, we know when we feel really positive about, about a, a, a data or a, a platform or a technology or something. You just you know you find a way because and and you can convince others that there is a way forward. So. Um, yeah. Moreover, we have a lot of training as scientists in uh, defeat and and you know hitting the wall. So it's it's not <laughs> that's one thing we're trained at is like really getting punched around quite a bit to get our papers published and get our grants you know written and even our experiments to work. Honestly, if you have a experimental success rate of twenty percent, you're doing pretty damn good. So we're accustomed to failure. You just got to keep going. It's true of every single person in the room. There, scientists have that in them. That be an MMA fighter. I love it. So Rob has a question. Rob Signer. Hi, Derek. Thanks for a wonderful talk. My question is about delivering mRNAs to, you know, hematopoietic or other somatic stem cells and the issue with them having really low translational output. And if this is creating a roadblock to actually getting those mRNAs to express protein within those, uh, within those stem cells. 
Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. So you know, HSCs, hematopoietic stem cells, a pretty dormant cell. Very you know, it's 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 all nucleus. It's almost no cytoplasm. It doesn't need a cytoplasm. It's not making making a lot of protein synthesis. If it's resting in G zero, it's not going through the cell cycle. It's taking a little pause there. So, um, you know, if you are doing it ex vivo, and as soon as you take it, HSCs ex vivo, you almost activate them by default. So they go into to cycle any type of stimulus. And, and you can actually, the cool thing about HSCs, when you take them ex vivo, they're all cell synchronized. They're G0, and then they go into G1. Actually, they have to clean up a bunch of DNA damage uh, first. <laughs> we published on that, you know, they come out of G0, and the first thing they see is, oh, our genome's full of damage. We've got to clean all that up. Uh, but then they enter G1 more or less synchronously. Uh, and you can time S phase actually. So you can actually, there's an advantage if you want to take advantage of um, HSCs when you first uh, pull them out, they're cell synchronized and there's offers advantages. In vivo, however, you've got a really great point. I mean, the bigger problem with in vivo, and, and you mentioned it, the delivery, you know, getting a cell type specific delivery vehicle is, I think, going to be the next big frontier um, in delivery science uh, for mRNAs. The great news is lots of people are working on it. Um, I mean, even if you look at the history of lipid nanoparticles, when they were first developed for siRNAs and the like, you know, the efficacy was you know, orders of magnitude less good than it is now. Moreover, they were orders of magnitude more toxic. So they're getting more and more effective, less and less toxic. Um, but I think the next frontier is more and more cell type specific uh, vehicles. It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, lipid nanoparticles, be nanoparticle of some sort or, or viral, you know, possibly viral delivery or viral shell capsid. Um, uh, in some way, shape, or form, or or other technologies that that aren't aren't yet developed or, or being developed, um, and then getting into a cell type that is, I think your point, which was a good one, you know, a relatively low protein uh, turnover, and you let's say you need to make it make Cas9. Well, there's there's low protein expression, but there is protein expression even in d dormant cells, uh, but you could always give a stimulation. Um, to a patient, let's say, to push these cells into cycle, that's possible to do uh, to up the protein uh, translation if you needed to have something expressed. But I think it's a really good point because it's true. It's a really uh, dormant G0 uh, population. And, and the bigger point of targeting those cells in a specific way, I think is really a, a great frontier and uh, something people are working on more and more people will work on. Well, thank you so much, Derek. As you can see, Derek has gone through the three phases of the truth, just like Liz Blackburn did with her discovery of telomerase. First, it's ridiculed, then it's vehemently opposed, and then it's accepted as self-evident. And that's usually how you win a Nobel Prize. So um, we're rooting for you, Derek. Um, but I, th I think the, the, I am a little bit surprised that Katy and Drew didn't win it uh, this past year. I mean, their, their fundamental discovery of the modified nucleosides are really, uh, we took it, we put it into, you know, made, made the translational leap, we and we and many others, but that's the fundamental discovery. So I, I think they'll, they'll be recognized. I was a little bit surprised it didn't happen this year. Very humble as usual. Uh, so you can see uh, Derek's a true blue Canadian uh, with that humility. Uh, but also, I think it just caps off the day perfectly. So you heard the fundamental discovery of longevity. What 
fuels longevity from Elizabeth Blackburn this morning. We ended the day for the reason most of us have longevity, thanks to your technology, uh, Derek, with Moderna. We wouldn't be here in person if it weren't for you, Derek, persevering, so thank you. And clearly there are many more things to do to treat other diseases, but certainly you allowed us to get through the pandemic. And now instead of being holograms, we're actually here in living person, and uh, hopefully we'll have you here again soon. Uh, I'm just going to wrap up the day very quickly. Thank you again, Derek. That was an incredible scientific tour. See you soon. Care, care. Yeah, thanks.